One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Last June, on the sun drenched shores of Lake Geneva, the leaders of the United States and Russia posed for photographers, palms outstretched in a handshake. How will you today? You find common ground? That moment of cordiality kicked off the first summit between Vladimir Putin and Joe Biden, and for the latter, the first step towards pursuing his administration's foreign policy doctrine. And President Putin and I share a unique responsibility to manage the relationship between two powerful and proud countries. A relationship that uh, has to be stable and predictable. But less than a year later, as conflict rages in Ukraine, President Biden has been forced to rip up that doctrine. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking how will the war in Ukraine test US foreign policy? My guest is Bob Menendez, the Democrat senator for New Jersey. He's also the chairman of the Senate's Foreign Relations Committee, a seat that gives him enormous influence over whether the White House achieves its diplomatic goals. During the Ukraine crisis, he's been a crucial ally of President Biden, and he introduced a bill dubbed the mother of all sanctions, aimed at throttling the Russian economy. But he's also a powerful player behind closed doors in Congress, and not afraid to be a thorn in the administration's side, notably in his opposition to resuscitating the Iran deal. Senator Bob Menendez, welcome to The Economist Asks. It's great to be with you and your audience at The Economist Asks. In response to the allegations of war crimes committed by Russian troops in Ukraine, the US and Western partners are strengthening sanctions and President Biden has announced that Russia's top banks will also fall under sanctions along with friends and family of Vladimir Putin. Are you satisfied that Congress is now doing enough to support Ukraine? And what else are you pondering? Congress voted to end preference in terms of trade relationship with Russia, which is incredibly important to codify the oil ban, which is incredibly important. When I introduced my legislation, which I called the mother of all sanctions bill, the administration has now largely invoked uh, most of those sanctions that I envisioned. But we have to continue to do two things. Uh, Number one, find more and more ways to tighten the economic noose around Putin's neck and to create turmoil for him in the economic effects in Russia. And two, to continue to do everything we can to give the lethal assistance necessary to Ukraine so that it can meet the battle ahead and be victorious. And uh, in that regard, I think uh, the Committee on Foreign Relations has jurisdiction over the question of arms sales, and I have expedited all arms sales to Ukraine that I have been asked to by the administration and will continue to do so in the days ahead. You talked about sanctions as a noose around the neck of, of the Putin regime, and it's a very vivid image. What makes you so sure that this noose works? Because there seem to be two counter-arguments. One is that it simply drives the bunker mentality, certainly the way the Russian media presents it. The world is ganging up on us. Ordinary people suffer. And it is true that if sanctions bite 
they do. And also that it just kind of rattles Putin. It just makes him dig in even further because adversity kind of suits him. I would say to those who uh, levy that criticism that the flip side of it would be, I guess we should send bouquets of flowers to Putin and he will change his course of action. The reality is, uh, from my perspective, after studying Putin for 30 years, he only understands strength. And he understood the lack of strength in 2008 when he invaded Georgia and uh, 2014 when he took Crimea. And the West's response was feeble. And it basically indicated to him that now in 2022, he thought he could do this and he'd face the same realities. Fortunately, this time the West acted much differently. So sanctions is not just about rattling. Sanctions is about creating an alternative reality for Putin on the ground in Russia that creates pressure on him. And sanctions have a tail to them. Sometimes they take a little more time to deepen and create consequences, but they do. As the author of many of the sanctions against rogue regimes, I've seen that over time. I believe that it is the important element to do. We only have a handful of peaceful diplomacy tools. This is one of them. Unlike Putin, we don't use uh, our military to advance our foreign policy goals. I'm pausing on that for a minute because actually, if they think my audience might take me up if I don't ask you, well, doesn't the US use the military for foreign policy goals? I mean, foreign policy goals are pursued in Iraq, in Afghanistan, and in other interventions, one might say justifiably, but most great powers do use their military to that effect. Oh, I don't think so. I I don't think so in the same context as Russia does. First of all, the United States does not commit the horrific acts that Putin has conducted in Ukraine. War crimes uh, may be considered genocide when the proof is all put out there. But at the end of the day, Afghanistan was about September 11th. It was about the perpetrators of September 11th. It was in pursuit of bin Laden. That is, in my mind, not a question of foreign policy pursuit. That is about uh, seeking justice and ending the threat against the United States. So let's look at the weapons asked from Ukraine and the West's response. America will provide additional military assistance to Ukraine to strengthen anti-arm assistance into Alia. When The Economist spoke with Volodymyr Zelensky at the end of last month, the Ukrainian president said that what he needs most is planes and tanks. And that led to a bit of a spat, didn't it, about the proposed transfer of MiG jets from Poland which President Biden declined to accept. What's your view on where that landed? Look, I I understand President Zelensky, who is in the midst of a war, wants everything. And I understand why he would want it. I'd be in the same position he is. The question for us and for NATO, it's not just the United States, is whether or not uh, certain actions invoke a wider conflict. And we seek no direct conflict with Russia, but we stand for supporting Ukraine. However, it is the diplomacy of the United States that has gotten our allies in the region to actually transfer weaponry, such as tanks that the Czechs are sending over, such as surface-to-air missiles that can help the Ukrainians continue to protect and, and seek to control their skies, and to do it of the vintage that the Ukrainians understand know how to use. Because if we send them a system that they've never used, the amount of time for training uh, would be uh, rather long and the need is emergent. Uh, So it wouldn't suit. So just to be clear, you think that was a a mistake then to ask for those Polish jets or other 
questions about it, really, whether they were congruent, whether they could be supplied and resupplied in in the time. I'm not going to say for President Zelensky that it was a mistake. It's what he thought was necessary to achieve his goals. But, you know, we have a military calculation as well as to what can the Ukrainians use successfully and how quickly can we get it to them. And so they have a fleet of planes. They don't fly as many sorties. They don't engage as much in the air with that fleet that they have. Uh, So our calculation was how do we help them bring down Russian uh, fighters if, in fact, they enter the airspace? How do we continue to provide them those supplies that are necessary for the victories that they've had with Stinger missiles uh, and Javelin missiles and others? And how do we give them the tanks that they believe they are necessary for the battle that may ensue on the ground? Remember that a lot of the missile launches are taking place from Russian and Belarus airspaces by those planes, not actually coming in to Ukrainian airspace. In a speech in Poland last month, President Biden said, for God's sake, this man, uh, meaning Putin, cannot remain in power. And of course, he was forced to clarify afterwards that he wasn't calling for regime change in Moscow. And he then vowed to defend every inch of NATO territory. And that seems to give uh, Russia perhaps or was misinterpreted as saying grabs in non-NATO territory might not fall into that. Has the president flubbed his messaging on Ukraine? No, I think not. I think the president uh, represented the moral outrage that the world has. And for those who do not have that moral outrage, uh, they need to have their conscience pricked. The reality is if we cannot see the consequences of Bukha, if we cannot see the consequences of the atrocity, the mass graves, the execution-style killings, the war crimes that have been committed by the Russians at the direction of Putin at the end of the day, then I worry about those nations who don't feel as President uh, Biden feels that Putin cannot stay in power. Now, that that is, again, not a call for regime change, but it is a moral outrage. That is, how does someone who has, by the, his direction, committed such atrocities ultimately stay in power? And there may be a call to the Russian people to think about whether or not they should be represented by Putin. But clarity matters here, doesn't it? And that phrase, every inch of NATO territory, naturally enough, makes you think about possible incursions uh, of Russia into non-NATO territory. What should the US response be if Vladimir Putin does move into one of those territories not within NATO? Well, we'll have to judge at that moment. I don't believe in creating absolute red lines. You have to see What is the nature of the actions taken? What does an incursion mean? But obviously, I think that NATO is thinking about, for non-NATO countries, when is there a risk to NATO? And so while Article 5 is a collective security agreement among the NATO allies, it doesn't mean that NATO can't come to a collective conclusion that actions taken outside of NATO may be a risk to NATO nations. And, and that, that may be a conclusion that they'll come to if Putin makes the mistake of getting closer to our NATO allied countries. So if Putin were to press Ukraine into territorial concessions in exchange for a ceasefire, most likely in the eastern region of the Donbass or the, thereabouts, and those areas then become Russian-controlled enclaves, what would happen then? Would the US still feel, you've used the word morally, and I think rightly so, I should say, you know, there is a moral imperative here about sending arms. But in that scenario, would America be happy to send arms to 
insurgents or indeed to Ukraine, which would be arming an insurgency. Again, we'd have to jump to the conclusion of the time based upon all the facts. If there is a Ukrainian government still exercising jurisdiction over a part of what is and has been Ukraine, then helping that Ukrainian government be able to stand itself up as I think incredibly important and would be a continuing a sense of uh, commitment to them. As it relates to an insurgency, that would suggest that the Russians have gone further than the Donbass, further than their land bridge, and have the designs that they originally have taking over the entire country, in which case that would be clearly an insurgency. So it depends upon what is the actual reality on the ground. But to the extent that there is a Ukrainian government and President Zelensky is that president or a future president is that president of a a sovereign Ukraine, uh, we want to help that sovereign Ukraine be able to continue to have its freedom and maintain its identity. The House recently passed a non-binding resolution reaffirming support for NATO and for its founding principles. That passed by 362 votes to 63. But the no votes, I think crucially for, for the sense of my question here, came all from the Republican side. It's the equivalent of more than 30% of the party's conference. Now, that does mark a shift, doesn't it, between a bipartisan consensus on supporting the alliance and what now looks like more division among party political lines. Well, I think the number that you described is uh, having served in the House of Representatives, you need 218 votes to pass anything. When you get in that 300 range, it's definitely bipartisan. That there is not an absolute view, particularly among Republicans, that in fact NATO is is an essential alliance. Uh, That is a dramatic shift for them as a party. This is the party of Ronald Reagan and George Bush. And ultimately, to think of NATO other than an absolute commitment is probably heinous at the end of the day. But I think there's an absolute bipartisan support. I certainly believe that it's here in the Senate and that it will continue to be so. Now you talk about the, the party there of Ronald Reagan and George Bush. But if Donald Trump or a Trumpist Republican were to win in 2024, do you expect the U.S. to remain committed to NATO? Well, it's interesting that you asked that question. First of all, I don't expect Donald Trump to return anytime soon. By the same token, my colleague, Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia, we just passed a legislation through the Senate Foreign Relations Committee that says a president asks Congress to ratify our entrance into the NATO treaty. A president should ultimately have to come to Congress to get out of NATO if that's what that president chooses to do and Congress should have a say. And I look forward to advancing that into law because I do believe we as a Congress voted nearly 75 years ago to get the U.S. into the NATO alliance through a treaty. The Congress should have a voice as to whether anybody could withdraw it. I mean, just just broadly speaking, do you think this fear that uh, America under, it doesn't have to be under Donald Trump, it could be under someone who takes a, a similar worldview to the one that Donald Trump held, would back away from NATO commitments. Do you think that view is overcooked? Do I believe that whether it be a Donald Trump or someone else, that they could prevail in getting NATO out? And the answer is no. I believe there is strong bipartisan, bicameral support for NATO and that the alliance is rock solid in terms of our commitment in Congress and as of the United States to keep it such. Just drawing the, the lens back a bit and uh, the global picture, the war in Ukraine has brought Russia and China 
closer together. How deep do you believe that support really is? I think our view in a recent piece was don't underestimate that this can be a genuine closening for all the differences and sometimes tensions between Russia and China. How is the US going to manage this shift? Well, I'm not surprised that authoritarians gravitate to each other. But I do think China, unlike Putin, cares about how it's viewed on the world stage and its alignment with Russia, particularly in the context of the war crimes that are being committed and the horrific pictures that we're seeing out of Russia, have to make even Xi think about how close an alignment he seeks. I think that President Biden's efforts in speaking directly to Xi, it's a very clear message that this is not a consequence-free decision that China would make. And so uh, I think the jury is out at the end of the day as to how close this relationship will actually end up being. If I were President Xi, I'm likely casting, I, I grant you, but I might say to you, well, I'm making a calculation here that President Biden will take his eye off the ball on China's presence, looming presence in the Indo-Pacific, because he's had to turn his attention to Europe. It's where the focus is and also of public opinion. Can the president really juggle this management of Asia and Europe? Oh, absolutely. Look, uh, the Biden administration came in clear-eyed, unlike the previous administration, and said China is the single biggest geostrategic challenge the United States and that the West has. And it is not a choice between us and China. It's a choice between two different ways of life. Uh, Do we want a life where we are free to make our own decisions, elect our own leaders, worship as we please, be able to prosper uh, from our own ingenuity? Or do we want one that the state directs everything about us, that limits our freedoms, uh, and that ultimately arbitrarily and capriciously can put people in jail? So that's the difference. And, And yes, we can manage that challenge at the same time that we are dealing with the challenges that Putin has created on the European continent. And we have to do both. Let's turn to the Senate. You've been described as the Democrat the White House fears the most. At the moment, I have to say, I think you're sounding pretty loyal to the White House. I don't think they have much problem with anything you've said to me uh, uh, today. How would you describe your relationship? You have at times been very challenging. You didn't support the Iran deal, which was a major pillar of the Biden administration when it came into office. I would say that we have a very close relationship with the administration. Uh, I have moved uh, from their secretary of state to all of their nominees to the committee. I've supported the president on Ukraine, supported his re-engagement with NATO and the transatlantic alliance, and so much more. Uh, But the framers of the Constitution of the United States created Article One of the Constitution. Article One is not the presidency of the United States. Article One is not the judicial branch of the United States. Article One, the very first article, is the Congress of the United States. And I believe and have believed, regardless of whether an administration is Democrat or Republican, in the separate co-equal branch of government and ensuring that uh, its oversight and prerogatives uh, are held to a high standard. And so uh, overwhelmingly, we agree with the president. When we disagree, we will respectfully disagree and you know speak from a position of a constitutional prerogative that we believe is the very essence of what our democracy is in terms of checks and balances. And I think when you respectfully disagree on constitutional prerogative, it can quite easily turn into quite quite a sharp argument. What have been the issues where you've had the most heated exchanges? Well, I mean, we have made clear that as someone who did not support the Iran deal in the first place, and for which many of the blemishes 
of 2015 are being seen very vividly in 2022 about that agreement, uh, that a return to the agreement as it was, especially with the sunset provisions as, of soon on the horizon, is not the stronger and longer deal the administration talked about. So we'll see what the ultimate deal is if they uh, fashion a deal, and we'll judge it accordingly. But we've made that clear. I also think that when the administration, in in pursuit of some of the energy challenges that we have as a nation and the world has, uh, to look towards a a narco dictator in Nicolás Maduro, uh, which the president himself has designated as a national security threat to the United States, doesn't speak well of our policies when we are promoting human rights, democracy, and the rule of law. You know Joe Biden well. He's a very familiar face around the Senate, of course, having served as Delaware senator for over three decades. The president's approval ratings have been low and they've been a bit stubbornly on the low side. They haven't budged. That's led to a bit of a perception that the administration is flailing. Fair or not? Not. I thought you might say that. (laughs) Well, I don't want to disappoint. Uh, So here's why. I think sometimes, like everything Americans focus on today and forget yesterday, but yesterday is a recent yesterday for this administration. They're only uh, 15 months old. Uh, The president walked into office at the verge after an insurrection that was taking place on January 6th. He walked into the Oval Office and there was not one vaccine that was on the shelf ready to be administered to Americans in the midst of a a once in a century pandemic. He not only had uh, vaccines manufactured, he had a distribution plan and a vaccination plan and 200 million Americans are now vaccinated. Now that did actually start under Donald Trump, doesn't it? I I know it's probably the words, in fairness to Donald Trump, don't come easily to your lips, but it is true. Uh, No, in fairness to Donald Trump, what he did is had Operation Warp Speed to create a vaccine But there were no vaccines on the shelf. So what's the use of creating a vaccine if you haven't purchased the supply, if you don't have a system to administer it, and if you don't have shots in the arms? Zero persons were vaccinated when Donald Trump left office. 200 million are vaccinated today as a result of the president. He led a major legislative initiative to stop the economic downfall that the country was in the midst of and created 6.4 million jobs in the first year of his administration. And he passed into law the greatest infrastructure investment that we have had since Eisenhower created the national highway system and reinvigorated our alliances abroad, which were critical to facing the challenge of Russia, which we did not necessarily foresee would be the case. So that's all in the first year. It sounds like you think people are a bit ungrateful. So what can the administration then do to reverse this impression? There's even talk about Joe Biden not being able to run for a second term. You know that that talk is around. It sounds like you think it's unfair, but what can he do about it? Listen, I've been around long enough to know that three years is an extraordinary time in presidential politics. I've seen polls rise and fall. I think the president will continually rise as Americans see we continue to exert leadership in the world as we have uh, ready for the challenges of whatever new iteration of the pandemic uh, brings. And as we deal with some of the social issues in our country that the president is leading on, I I have confidence uh, that with time uh, he will succeed. If one judges a poll at any given moment, I wouldn't necessarily be sitting here speaking to you as the United States senator. We'll call you the morning after the next uh, election. In fact, when when it's decided who's going to be candidate, would you you come back and talk to us? Of course, we'd love to. (laughs) Senator Bob Menendez, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. It's been a great pleasure to, to chat with you on all of these issues. All the best. 
do let us know what you think. How should President Biden manage the two pillars of his foreign policy commitments, Asia and Europe? And is there a blind spot he might be failing to see? Write to us at podcast@economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Pods. And don't forget, you can get more insight on what's happening in American politics from my treasured colleagues on the Checks and Balance podcast. Listen to them every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, the only way to truly enjoy all of our journalism is to become a subscriber. And to sign up, visit economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell with assistance from Melanie Starling-Condon. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.